Let us pray. Lord, sanctify us by your word. Your word is truth. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, our strength and redeemer. Amen. Grace and peace to you all. There was an extensive research that was done by a psychologist, Dr. Patrick Carnes, on the subject of compulsive behavior. And it was the type of compulsive behavior that related especially to lust. And in his study and interviews and surveys, he found that 77% of those he was interviewing grew up in some kind of rigid family structure, and 80% of those who likewise had compulsive, unwanted compulsive behaviors grew up in disengaged family structures. In other words, he was drawing a connection between being raised in a rigid family structure or a disengaged family structure that would lead later in life to unwanted compulsive behaviors, especially lust. Now, if we unpack the psychology of sin, there is a lot that could be said on this subject. There is a lot that could be said of how we develop the habits we develop, the particular sins that affect and infect us, the particular ways that we hurt and respond in our lives by unhealthy behavior. But at the end of that study, if that's all we know, it doesn't really do us much good. Because as much as we can unpack the psychological and spiritual connections to our past, our upbringing, our parents, and our experiences as children, it doesn't resolve the issue. Nothing will resolve these issues of hurt, fear, anger, sin, and so on, unless we confront these things with Jesus. And that's why we're looking at the baptism and temptation of Jesus today, is to see three things that Jesus does in just these short little verses from Mark. Like a quick jab step. In these short little verses, Jesus meets us, he leads us, and he in fact secures us in his victory. First of all, he meets us. Jesus meets us in the waters of baptism. He meets us where we are in our sin, in our unwanted thoughts and behaviors, He meets us right there in the waters of baptism. It says that in those days, John the Baptist had come preaching a baptism of repentance. That John the Baptist, as we saw from last week, was setting up the crowds for what was coming. He was preparing them for the coming of the one who would make all things new. And so he told them to prepare to repent of their sins, confess all of their deepest fears and wrongdoings, 
and be ready for the coming of the Messiah. But there's a sort of surprise that happens right in the midst of all of that. And that is in the midst of the crowd of sinners who are coming in order to confront their sinfulness in the waters of the Jordan River is the Messiah. It in fact surprises and maybe even offends us that Jesus would come, the one we're not even worthy to to be the lowliest servant that could tie his shoes, comes right into the water with us. The whole movement of Mark chapter 1 is trying to evoke in our minds a picture of the whole history of the Old Testament, which is the story of Israel. The story of Israel which began, in a sense, at the Jordan River. It is calling the people back to their origins. The origins of Israel, which crossed the Jordan River before coming into the land that they're now living in. Now they're going back to the beginning. And it's the same people and the same land from which this man comes. Notice in verse 1, in verse 9, It says, in those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee. Those words are as simple and ordinary as any words in the Bible. Jesus, a man born of human parents, had come from a human town in Nazareth in Galilee to the Jordan River. There's nothing spectacular about that. Jesus comes from the ordinary human story of Israel. He's born right into their midst, right in Nazareth. He's human just like you and me. It's not until the next verses unfold that we see there's actually so much more that's not being seen at first. That this same man who's come to the Jordan River to be baptized like everybody else is not like everybody else. And his baptism marks something completely different. The heavens are open. In fact, it says they're torn open. Like ripping a piece of fabric in two. And a voice comes from heaven. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And the spirit descends on him like a dove. How many of us long to hear those words? You are my son. You are my daughter. I love you. And I'm pleased with you. It might actually be the deepest longing that every human has. To know who we are, where we belong to know that we're loved, and to know that God is pleased with us. What more could we possibly ask for in this world? And it's in fact at times in our lives where we most struggle with sin, where we are most lost and longing and hurting, is when we are not having these questions answered. We don't know where we belong. We don't believe we're loved. And we don't think we could ever please God. Because we look at our lives, we look at our experiences. And maybe we've had those experiences with people we love. 
who don't seem to love back, or who are never pleased, or who have abandoned us. Every struggle, confusion, and temptation is meant to point you back to these questions. Your identity. Who are you? Jesus wants to meet you in the waters of baptism so that when you think about these questions, you go back not to just your earthly parents, not to Nazareth, but to the waters in which God made you his own. His son, his daughter, his beloved, the one in which he is well pleased. Because when Jesus goes into the water, we go into the water with him. And only because Jesus is in the water can we say the same things. And does God say the same things of us? He meets us where we are. Meets you right where you are in those questions and confusions, struggles and sin in order to show you where he's leading you. And where he's leading you might not be what you want. Immediately, it says, Jesus was driven by the Spirit. Now, that sounds good. We want to be driven by the Spirit, don't we? We want the Spirit to fill us with such compulsion, such direction, that we know where we're headed. But we might not like it once we get there. Because the Spirit drives Jesus right into temptation. Now, the word immediately shows you the connection between being a baptized child of God and facing difficulty, adversity, wilderness, and temptation. It means that you cannot address these questions of your identity without facing the challenge. And so Jesus has to be driven. In fact, the word that Mark uses is cast out. It's the same word that the Bible uses to speak of Adam and Eve being cast out of the Garden of Eden. There's a play on words here to indicate that Jesus is taking the place of Adam now, our father, just like he's taking the place of every one of us. And the experience that he faces in the wilderness is a sense in which he's cast out. He doesn't go to Jerusalem. He doesn't go to the palace where he can sit down on his throne. He doesn't go to the temple where people can bow down and worship him. No, the spirit drives him into the wild places immediately. So if any of you have ever thought that getting your Christian faith right is going to lead to an easier path, you haven't read the Bible. At least you haven't read it closely enough because getting your Christian faith right and knowing your identity as a child of God means more difficulty. It means facing things that you don't want to face. Things that you would not have to face if you were just of the world. If you were just on a throne. If you were just being worshipped. The urgency that Jesus shows us is to confront 
the deepest questions of our lives. From the waters of baptism into temptation. Those questions and longings and pains that you've maybe never confronted. Or maybe you have and you said this is too difficult. I am never going to resolve this. There are no answers. And you've resigned yourself. The Spirit drove Jesus to face these things. And the problem that we run into is that we can't face them on our own. We can't face the depth of pain that we might face because of what someone else did to us. Or the depth of pain we might feel because of what we've done to ourselves. Every fear, every anger, every lust is kept hidden away until you go to those wild places. Because these are the places in our lives we can't control. We like to keep our life in order where we can control what's going on, the way we're feeling, the things we're going to do today, how much we're going to let other people into our lives. But the wild places, the place where Satan is, the place where he wants to stay hidden, are the places of sin, the places of fear, the places of loneliness. And that's where Jesus goes. It reminds me of a daughter once who was an adult, and she had a family that was quite rigid. And her whole life she had grown up trying to make her father happy and never could. And so one day as an adult, she had an affair. And cheated on her family and ruined everything. She came forward with this and told her family and faced her shame and, and what she had done repented. At the 50th wedding anniversary of her father and mother, her father got up and gave a speech. And in his speech, he managed to mention how thankful he was for 50 years of faithfulness and for some of his children who also remain faithful. Now, what do you think that little girl who was now a grown adult felt like? It led her into a time of depression and despair until she finally realized, no, her father was just trying to push whatever control he was trying to have in his own life into the shame that he put on her. And if you don't start to realize that, you might start to think God feels the same way. That God starts to look at you and say, well, I'm surely pleased with some of my children. Jesus meets you in the water. Jesus goes out into the wilderness because he wants to be with you. To confront those deep longings and questions. And without being out there in the temptations to face those questions... They will remain buried, and whether you like it or not, you will continually repeat habits of sin and longing and loneliness until God gets you to confront those things. 
And when Jesus confronts those things and says, you're not alone, he's tempted by Satan for 40 days. And what Satan attacks is his identity. Are you really God's son? Is he really love you? Can you really say that God is pleased with you? And Jesus is faithful through it all. Because he knows, although the father remains silent for 40 days, he's never alone. And the father is putting him through that for his good and for our good. For a future that Jesus is leading us toward. A future of security in the father's family. Because we have to go through those times and ask those questions so we can get to where Jesus wants us to be, his kingdom, where he secures us in his victory. In the story of Daniel, you'll remember we reviewed so many of those events that happened in Daniel's life during our series in November, December. And one of those was the men in the fiery furnace. These three friends of Daniel that had to stand in the court of the king and had their identity questioned. Their family history brought to the test. Will they bow down to the king and his idol of Babylon? Or will they remain true and faithful to the one they serve? And facing that temptation was anything but pleasant. And it in fact ended with them being thrown into fire. That God didn't prevent them from being thrown in. And it was there in the fire that the king looks and he sees there's no longer three, but there's four. There's someone standing with them, one that looks like the son of the gods. That Jesus himself would stand by his people through fire and brimstone in temptation and trial. And just like the king Nebuchadnezzar, the tyrant Satan is wanting to throw you into the fire and thinking that that's going to destroy you. It's interesting when Jesus comes out of this experience, it says he was with the wild beasts and the angels were ministering to him. At the end of the day, this is actually preaching God's victory. Daniel had a vision, and in his vision, he saw these beasts that were coming up out of the sea. And the beasts represented these kings and kingdoms that would come and go. And each beast was going to be scarier than the one before, and they were going to try to frighten God's people into submission. And it wasn't until later in the vision that you saw the real king arise, the one like the son of man, not like the beast, but one like Adam who had come to secure God's kingdom and victory. And it says when he came before the throne, that the angels were ministering to him. I believe Mark is alluding to Daniel. That on the one hand, Jesus is able to tame the wild beasts. Like Adam in the Garden of Eden was supposed to rule over all the wild animals. And they were going to be subservient to him. 
is also a symbol of Jesus' victory over all the wild beasts of this world, the wild places, the kings and kingdoms and tyrants, those in this world who think they're in charge, who think they're going to win by forcing Christians into submission to their rules and their powers. But all the while, the Son of Man stands in the midst of it all victorious, where the angels are by his side, ministering to him, worshiping and bowing down before the one God has chosen to be the Messiah. Jesus secures the victory over every wild power that you might be afraid of, And the angels surround us for God's purposes, heaven and earth together in Jesus. Which is why Jesus can then say in the next verse, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. That's your security. That's your security against sin, against Satan, and against death itself. The security that Jesus is with you. That he's met you in the water. That he's walked through the temptation leading you all the while. And you are following him. And that he secures the victory over Satan. So that he can make the proclamation. And you can join the proclamation with him. In our closing hymn, we're going to sing that proclamation. Sin disturb my soul no longer. I am baptized into Christ. I have comfort even stronger. Jesus, cleansing, sacrifice. Should a guilty conscience seize me, since my baptism did release me, in a dear forgiving flood, sprinkling me with Jesus' blood. Satan, hear this proclamation. I am baptized into Christ. Drop your ugly accusation. I am not so soon enticed. Now that to the font I've traveled, all your might has come unraveled, and against your tyranny, God my Lord unites with me. Amen.